We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I feel the liftoff. The clock has started. Roger. In God's speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. This is a new and strange environment first. Just suddenly finding yourself in orbit. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 16 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, astronaut candidates. As a means of introduction to this episode, I want to answer the question, who were the first U.S. astronauts selected? Oh, that's easy, you say. It was the Mercury 7. But were they really the first selected? Before NASA was created in October 1958, there was another manned space initiative. It was run by the Air Force and called the Manned Military Space System Development Plan. The final goal was to achieve an early capability to land a man on the moon and return him safely to Earth. The first of four phases, called Man in Space Soonest, had an unfortunate acronym, M-I-S-S, MISS. MISS-1 involved orbiting a ballistic capsule, first carrying instruments, then primates, and finally a man. In the second phase, Man in Space Sophisticated, MISS-2, a heavier capsule capable of a 14-day flight would be put in orbit. Lunar Reconnaissance, the third phase, would soft land on the moon with instruments including a television camera. The last phase was manned lunar landing and return. Wherein primates, then men, would be orbited around the moon, landed on its surface, and returned safely. The whole undertaking was supposed to cost $1.5 billion, a level of financial support that the Air Force believed was enough to complete the program by the end of 1965, which meant manned missions to the moon by 1965. Very ambitious. To accomplish the program, the Air Force chose several launch vehicles to complete each phase. First, there was the Thor Vanguard. Next, there was the Thor with a fluorine upper stage. And next was a Super Titan, topped by fluorine second and third stages. On the 25th of June, the Air Force completed a preliminary astronaut selection for the project. The list was prioritized according to the weight of the pilot due to low payload capacities. The 150 to 175 pound group consisted of test pilots Bob or Robert Walker, Scott Crossfield, Neil Armstrong, and Robert Rushworth. In the 175 to 200 pound group were William Bridgman, Alvin White, Ivan Kinchlow, Robert White, and Jack McKay. It was the first astronaut selection in history. 
Of course, the Air Force program was canceled on August 1st, and President Eisenhower gave NASA control of the manned space program. But two of these men would later reach space. Walker made two X-15 flights above 100 kilometers in 1963, and Neil Armstrong joined NASA in 1962 and flew in Project Gemini and Apollo, becoming the first man to set foot on the moon. Now let's move on to the NASA manned program. On October 7, 1958, the new National Aeronautics and Space Administration announced its first man-in-space program, NASA's first major undertaking. It began just six days after NASA started operation. The objectives of the man-in-space program were threefold. First, to place a human spacecraft into orbit around the Earth. Second, observe human performance in such conditions. And third, recover the human and the spacecraft safely. At this early point in the U.S. space program, many questions remained. Could a human function ably as a pilot, engineer, experimenter in harsh conditions of weightless flight? If yes, who were the right people for this challenge? On November 26, the Man in Space program was officially named Project Mercury. In December 1958, the selection procedures for Project Mercury were directed by a NASA selection committee consisting of Charles Donlan, a senior management engineer, Warren North, a test pilot engineer, Stanley White and William Argerson, flight surgeons, Alan Gamble and Robert Voas, psychologist, and George Ruff and Edwin Levy, psychiatrist. The president was involved as well. Eisenhower personally made the decision that the first astronauts should be military test pilots with college degrees. The committee recognized that the unusual conditions associated with spaceflight are similar to those experienced by military test pilots and agreed with Ike. Now let's move on to the selection of NASA's first astronauts. Here are the qualifications NASA was looking for in an astronaut candidate. Applicants must be a U.S. citizen between the age of 25 and 40 years old. Applicants must have excellent health and be shorter than 5 foot 11 inches tall. Applicants must have a minimum four-year bachelor's degree, preferably in math, science, or engineering. Applicants must be a graduate of a test pilot school and a qualified jet pilot in possession of at least 1,500 hours of flight experience. Applicants must be willing to accept hazards comparable to those encountered in modern research airplane flights. Applicants must have the capability to tolerate rigorous and severe environmental conditions. Applicants must have the ability to react adequately under conditions of stress or emergency. Unfortunately, these qualifications eliminated three of the best pilots available. Chuck Yeager, the first person to break the sound barrier, never went to college. Bill Bridgman had set speed and altitude records, but was over 40 years old. Scott Crossfield, the first pilot to reach Mach 2, 
was a civilian. Many qualified pilots refused to apply because of one paragraph in the official NASA astronaut description that troubled them. This is what it said. Quote, Although the entire satellite operation can be possible in the early phases without the presence of man, the astronaut will play an important role during the flight. He will contribute by monitoring the cabin environment and making necessary adjustments. He will have continuous displays of his position and altitude and other instrument readings and will have the capability of operating the reaction controls and of initiating the descent from orbit. He will contribute to the operation of the communication system. In addition, the astronaut will make research observations that cannot be made by instruments. These include physiological, astronomical, and metallurgical observations. End quote. The wording of the paragraph gave many seasoned pilots the impression that NASA was recruiting passengers, not pilots. These pilots were well aware of the danger associated with the Mercury program. In particular, that the spacecraft was being mounted to the top of an essentially unmodified intercontinental ballistic missile. Pilots who disapproved of the NASA astronaut program dubbed the astronauts ham in a can. So, what really were the duties of an astronaut candidate? NASA said it fell into three major categories. This is from NASA. Through training sessions and prescribed reading of technical reports, they will acquire specialized knowledge of the equipment, operations, and scientific tests involved in manned space flight. They will gain knowledge of the concepts and equipment developed by others, and as their knowledge and experience develops, they will contribute their thinking toward ensuring maximum success of the planned flights. Second, they will make tests and act as observers under tests in experimental investigations designed to develop proficiency and confidence under peculiar conditions such as weightlessness and high acceleration. To, limit, to enable more accurate evaluation of their physical, mental, and emotional fitness to continue the program and to help elicit the knowledge necessary to evaluate and enable the final development of communication, display, vehicle control, environmental control, and other systems involved in the space flight. The third category. They perform special assignments in one or more of their areas of scientific or technical competence as an adjunct to the regular programs of the research team, the research center, or NASA. These assignments may include doing research, directing or evaluating tests or other programs, or doing other work which makes use of their special competencies. In other words, they will do what they're told to do and contribute from their knowledge and experience when needed. What was the salary for performing these duties? Well, the initial astronaut salary was offered at $8,330 per year, up to $12,770 per year, depending upon the qualifications of each astronaut. Now, in 2012 dollars, that would be 
$65,000 per year up to $100,000 per year. It's not bad money, but it is a very dangerous job. Now back to the selection. In January 1959, the Astronaut Selection Committee received and screened 508 service records of a group of talented test pilots. 110 men were found to meet the minimum standards. The list of names included five Marines, 47 Navy men, and 58 Air Force pilots. Several Army pilots' records had been screened earlier, but none was a graduate of a test pilot school. The Evaluation Committee at Headquarters, headed by the Assistant Director of the Space Task Group, STG, Charles J. Donlin decided to divide the list of 110 arbitrarily into three groups and to issue invitations for the first group of 35 to come to Washington at the beginning of February for briefings and interviews. Donlin was pleased to learn from his staff that 24 of the first group interviewed were happy with the prospects of participating in the Mercury program. The next week, Group 2 of the astronaut candidates arrived in Washington. The high rate of volunteering in the first and second group made it unnecessary to extend the invitation to the third group. So, everyone in the third group was eliminated just by having bad luck enough to be arbitrarily placed in the third group. This is how Donlin justified the elimination of the third group. Quote, During the briefings and interviews, it became apparent that the final number of pilots should be smaller than the 12 originally planned for. The high rate of interest in the project indicates that few, if any, of the men will drop out during the training program. It would, therefore, not be fair to the men to carry along some who would not be able to participate in the flight program. Consequently, a recommendation has been made to name only six finalists, end quote. Sixty-nine men had reported to Washington in two groups by the middle of February. Of these, six were found to have grown too tall. Fifty-six pilots took the initial battery of written tests, technical interviews, psychiatric interviews, and medical history reviews. Here is a sample of the questions given on the written test. There was a section of the test called Miller's Analogy Test. I'll read a sample question. Light is to dark as pleasure is to... And your choices were picnic, day, pain, and night. If you guessed pain, you are correct. Another section of the test was called Minnesota Engineering Analogies. Let me give you a sample question. Brass is to alloy as iron is to, and your choices are, compound, element, steel, and rust. If you guessed element, you are correct. There was a mathematical analogy section with shapes and equations. And there was a section called Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. Read each statement and mark whether it is true or false as it applies to you. 
So here are the statements. Number one, I often worry about my health. True or false? Number two, I am often unhappy. True or false? Number three, sometimes I feel like cursing. <laughs> True or false? Number four, an interesting one. Strangers keep trying to hurt me. True or false? If you mark that false, you might want to change your answer after you go through the battery of physical examinations you're going to. Alright, and the final question, the final section of the test was called incomplete sentences. Complete these sentences to express your real feelings. Be sure to make a complete sentence. Number one, I am sorry that, fill in the blank. Number two, I can never, fill in the blank. Number three, I hope, fill in the blank. And number four, at times, fill in the blank. All right, that is the NASA samples of astronaut candidate tests. Those who declined or were eliminated reduced the total astronaut candidates at the beginning of March to 36 men. They were invited to undergo the extraordinarily physical examinations planned for them at the Loveless Clinic in Albuquerque. 32 accepted and became candidates knowing also that they were scheduled to pass through extreme mental and physical environmental tests at the Wright Air Development Center in Dayton, Ohio. After being certified as physically qualified by the Loveless Clinic, the 32 candidates were assured that their data derived from these examinations in New Mexico and Ohio would not jeopardize their military careers, since none of these findings was to go on their service records. Individually, each candidate arrived at Albuquerque to undergo approximately a week of medical examinations. In this phase of the program, over 30 different laboratory tests collected chemical, encephalographic, and cardiographic data. X-ray examinations thoroughly mapped each man's body. The ophthalmology section and the otolaryngology sections Likewise, learned almost everything about each candidate's eyes and his ears, nose, and throat. Special physiological examinations included bicycle ergonometer test, a total body radiation count, total body water determination, and the specific gravity of the whole body. Heart specialists made complete cardiological examinations and other clinicians worked out more complete medical histories on these men than probably have ever been attempted on any human being. Nevertheless, the selectees were so healthy that only one of the 32 was found to have a medical problem potentially serious enough to eliminate him from the subsequent test at the Wright Aeromedical Laboratory. The next phase of the selection program was an amazingly elaborate set of environmental studies, physical endurance tests, anthropometric measurements, and psychiatric studies conducted at the Aeromedical Laboratory of the Wright Air Development Center. During March, each of the 31 subjects spent another week experiencing a wide range of stressful conditions. NASA explained the purpose of these procedures as followed. The purpose of the medical examination at Loveless Clinic 
had been to determine the general health status of the candidates. The purpose of the testing program at Wright Field was to determine the physical and psychological capabilities of the individual to respond effectively and appropriately to the various types of stresses associated with space missions. In addition to the pressure suit test, acceleration test, vibration test, heat test, and loud noise test, each candidate had to prove his physical endurance on treadmills, tilt tables, with his feet in ice water, and by blowing up balloons until exhausted. Candidates were given continuous psychiatric interviews and extensive self-examination through a battery of 13 psychological tests for personality and motivation, and another dozen different tests on intellectual functions and special aptitudes. These were all part of the Week of Truth, at Dayton. Two of the more interesting personality motivation studies seemed like parlor games at first until it became evident how profound an exercise in Socratic introspection was implied by conscientious answers to the test questions, such as, Who am I? and Whom would you assign to a mission if you could not go yourself? In the first case, by requiring the subject to write down 20 definitional identifications of himself ranked in order of significance and interpreted projectively, the psychologist elicited information on identity and perception of social roles. In the peer ratings, each candidate was asked which of the other members of the group of five accompanying him through this phase of the program he liked best which one he would like to accompany him on a two-man mission and whom he would substitute for himself. Candidates who had proceeded this far in the selection process all agreed with one who complained, quote, nothing is sacred anymore, end quote. Back at the Space Task Group headquarters at Langley late in March 1959, the final phase began. The final evaluation of data was made by correlating clinical and statistical information from New Mexico and Ohio. Eighteen of the 31 candidates came recommended without medical reservations for final consideration by Donlan and North. According to Donlan, although the physicians, psychiatrists, psychologists, and physiologists had done their best to establish gradations, the attribution rate was too low. So the final criteria for selecting the candidates reverted to the technical qualifications of the men and the technical requirements of the program as judged by Donlan, North, White, and finally, Gilruth. We looked for real men and valuable experience, said Donlan. The selection tests, as it turned out, were largely tests of tests conducted as much for the research value in trying to formulate the characteristics of astronauts as for determining any deficiencies of the group being examined. The verbal response of the interviews before and after the psychophysiological testing, therefore, seemed to have been as important final determinants as the candidates' test scores. Sitting in judgment over 18 finalists, Donlan White and North pared down the final pool of candidates, choosing each to complement the rest of the group. 
The going was so difficult that they could not reach the magic number six. So Gilruth decided to recommend seven. Donlin then telephoned each of the seven individually to ask whether he was still willing to accept a position as a Mercury astronaut. Each one gladly volunteered again. The 24 who were passed over were notified and asked to reapply for reconsideration in some future program. Gilruth's endorsement of the final list was passed upward to Silverstein and Glennon for final review, and by mid-April the faces of America's original seven spacemen were shown to the world. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.